like really just start to recognize and you might need therapy for this but just really start to recognize what your triggers are like when my husband started going missing that was a huge panicking thing for me i started i eventually did get a panic disorder because of it i got ptsd so i mean that was major and i had to go to a doctor and i had to get medication and you know just to deal with it so i mean that's okay you know you can go to a doctor you can you can get help with what's going on with you this is traumatizing and it can really 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 affect you it's it's really difficult so so look for help there Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from a clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 35. Hi friends, welcome back to another conversation on the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. Today, we're having a very raw conversation and I really appreciate that. Uh, We're talking about when your spouse is struggling with addiction or substance abuse. Um, It's a really heavy topic. There are a lot of layers that go into this. Uh, Not only are those who are suffering from addiction going through a struggle, but also those around them, spouses, children, um, and those who care and love about them are affected as well. It really is a a family affair. And so I want to talk about that because this happens more commonly than people realize. This is something that I've personally experienced um, in my own journey. And I really do believe that it can be hard to fully understand the depths of how much this can affect you unless you've gone through that. And oftentimes what's unfortunate is that those who haven't been in these shoes, those that haven't gone through this, sometimes can kind of bypass over how serious the consequences are, not only mentally, but physically, emotionally, uh, generationally, financially, when there are cases of severe substance abuse, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or the like. And the other thing I don't think people realize is how connected uh, addiction is to mental health challenges. In fact, substance use disorders have a high prevalence of co-occurring with mental health diagnoses. In fact, a number of national population surveys have found that about half of those who experience mental illness in their lives will also experience a substance abuse disorder uh, and vice versa. Many times at the root of it, someone may be struggling with a mental health challenge like anxiety or depression or you know PTSD, ADHD, trauma, hyperactivity, whatever it is. And it's the use of the substance of the alcohol or drugs that is actually to help self-medicate some of those mental health symptoms that they're experiencing. It's a method of coping, but it is a maladaptive and an unhealthy way to cope that leads to more destructive outcomes, right? But oftentimes it's a case of there is actually a mental health issue at the root and the substance is helping to self-medicate, which in a way makes sense when you think about it. It is easier to access, it is less expensive, and you don't have to go through the healthcare system, which can be tedious. However, We do want to advocate holistic and healthy healing that really is transformational toward uh, healthy lives, healthy relationships, and the longevity of a sustaining life and living up wholeheartedly to the life we've been called to live. However, I think there are many of us who understand that it's just not that simple. And so I'm really happy to have my friend Leah Gray on to talk about this uh, and just talk about it in a honestly in a very real honest and practical way um she shares her story now leah moved to new york city you know full of hopeful aspirations until her husband went into long-term treatment for addiction this is something that she's really open her and her husband are very open about sharing this story uh to help others and you know unable to afford to stay she picked up her childhood dreams and moved back to canada with her two young children and 
You know, from rooftop city skyline views to her parents' basement in the darkest time of her life, she did go ahead and create Gray Ministries to support, encourage, and empower women with loved ones who struggle with addiction. With a practical faith-based approach, she challenges popular beliefs about addiction while teaching women in crisis how to find God's peace within the storms of life. So I just thought that she would be someone great to just chat about this subject and peel back the layers. As you guys know, we both love having people on the show who are mental health professionals and those who have lived experiences, those who have lived in it. Uh, lived experience and shared wisdom is is so valuable. And so I really think that that's, that is what this episode serves today. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Leah Gray. Hi, Leah. It's so great to have you on the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. It's nice to be here. <laughs> oh, my, I feel like um, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because you definitely feel like a friend from afar for me in a way because I've been we've been following each other for so long. Um, and I was just say, I was just sharing how. My, the first time that I came into contact with you was actually on Pinterest and you had these really cool, great pins. You were talking a lot about anxiety and mental health at the time before you were kind of coming into some of the work that you're doing today that we were talking about more of. And so, you know, it's just been really cool to see your evolution and your story and your just vulnerability and transparency over the years. Well, thank you. You know what? The reason that I changed it is because my husband was super uncomfortable. So, I thought so yeah, um, yeah. So it changed over time as he got more comfortable. Then I could share more about his side of the story instead of just me having anxiety. I could tell why I had anxiety. That okay? That makes a lot of sense. Like that's piecing yeah. everything together for me now. And yeah. I know everyone listening right now is like, "What are they even talking about?" So. Why don't, for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, why don't you let us know a little bit about yourself and the story leading up to the work that you're doing today? Because I know you have such a story and um, (laughs) I'm looking forward to unpacking that with you. Okay. So I was raised in a super uber conservative um, Mennonite brethren community. Mm. I'm not Mennonite, but all of my parents' friends were. And so we went to the Mennonite church. I drank lemonade made by hand. We, I mean, just everything we got. I was given quilts as presents. Like it was very traditional and safe in Canada. Mm. And my whole life, all I wanted, I was like super obsessed with New York City. And I just really wanted to live there. I felt like I was supposed to go there. And so when I was 19, my mom took me on a trip there. and. Like when I arrived, I just felt this overwhelming thing of, oh my goodness, like I'm home. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I remember asking a waiter how much an apartment was. And he said something like, oh, a one bedroom is about $1,200 a month. And I was like, okay, well, that dream is not happening because I was a poor student and, you know, not going to happen. So anyways, long story short, I just kind of like went on with my life. I got pregnant at 21 Mm -hmm. and... I had to switch my career path with school and all these different things happened. But um, in that time, I met my husband now. And we actually met on New Year's Eve at a Dead Mouse concert. I was not, I just was going with some people from work. I hadn't gone out for New Year's Eve in probably five or six years. And they're like, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And so they dragged me out and they all ditched me. I don't even really know where they went, but they just left. And so I was just there alone. So I was waiting for somebody to come pick me up. And that's when my husband started talking to me. So we started talking more and more. I figured out he was from New York. And the more we talked, we just kind of didn't stop. So we started dating long distance. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I moved to New York um, and we got married. And then after, uh, it was probably within the first year, I noticed that he was drinking a lot and and more than just just more than what I think is normal, right? Yeah. And after we got married, I got pregnant about 3 months later and he that's when I really noticed it. About 3 days after I got pregnant, he went missing and he just didn't come home. Mm-hmm. And I was just blown away and 
very upset and crying in the bathroom and I couldn't find him. And I was very sure he was dead because at that point I was not, um, I didn't know anything about addiction. Like I've really, really sheltered, right? I barely left my apartment. I was so afraid of New York. I was terrified once I moved there. And so I just thought he was dead and he did eventually come home. And when I found out that he had been at a party, I, I just lost it. I packed up my son and, um, and I just left. And so that kind of started this whole back and forth journey of, um, finding out that my husband had an addiction and mind you for the first year, I thought he was an alcoholic. I actually, he was hiding a drug addiction from me and I didn't know until the Mm -hmm. second year. So it was a whole year of him going to AA and doing all these things. And I didn't even know his problem is actually drugs. So I was really proud of him. He stopped drinking just like that. It was super easy. And I was like, wow, he's great. (laughs) Right. But it was drugs that he was doing. So. Yeah. And. That's the story. (laughs) That's the story. And I mean, it's. So we have similar backgrounds. And I think this is why. I'm like, how do I say this? I'm, I think this is why I attracted to you or know what? <laughs> like your story, our yeah. stories. Um, I have a past of being with someone who also struggled with um, addiction and whatnot. So that's another story. But like um, it is a back and forth thing for sure. And, and also just grateful to your husband to be at a place of vulnerability to allow you to share this and, and whatnot. Because I think that uh, it's more common than people realize. And it's very hush-hush, especially it, especially in the Christian community sometimes. Really any community. <laughs> but um, um, all of that being said, like for you, what were the signs? Was it just the the disappearance, because I've experienced those disappearances before as well. Um, and then you you realize you were in a constant state of anxiety. Like your life was always in anxiety. Um, and um, I mean, for you, what were the signs where it got to the point that you realized like, okay, this is, this is a, a really big problem. Like were there multiple signs that led up to that that were flags? Or was it just that kind of that time that he disappeared and it took a while? No, there was multiple things. Yeah. And it, and a lot of it was actually my family pushing me and saying he has a drinking problem. Um, and then I, I didn't see that it was drugs. Like he would always drink to cover up the drugs, right? So right. it never ever would have occurred to me that he could have, he was doing cocaine ma- mainly. So it's really easy to hide, right? He never mm. lost his job. He was never falling over. He wasn't like crazy intoxicated mm. on a day-to-day basis. He's a functional was addict. Yeah. Extremely functional. And that's hard. And, yeah. Yeah. And doing well in every other area of his life. Like he was getting he was getting promoted at work and he was making good money and you know, we just got married and then we had a baby and so there was really nothing to motivate any change at all because right. you know, he was fine, right? So I think that the problem, I think that when it really got to be like a big thing, and I noticed that it was more than alcohol, is when he it started to escalate at a certain point. Um, I had found out something about his past that he just didn't want me to know. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, he just lost it. And he started spending so much money. And even at that point, like he was, he was working long hours on a normal day anyway. So I didn't notice anything different about him not being home. But it was more just that the money was going missing. And right. you know, he'd come home and he wouldn't eat anything. And and that's when I started to kind of really notice like, oh, or even just very like aggressive in his in his responses to things. You know, he was very angry and snippy. Yeah. And then the next day he'd be exhausted. And, you know, he's like, I'm just tired from work. And it's really easy to believe it. But yeah. You know, and, it, and it messed with my head because I was not sure at most of the time if he was high. And to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure I would know all the time right now because he was so functional. So mm. that's yeah, it's a hard thing. I, I really appreciate your honesty in that because it, like you said, when it's high functioning and it's continuously being rewarded, um, 
what is what's the reason to stop you know yeah and I mean obviously you guys are in a different place now um than when all this started and so I guess leaving off there what was what was that what how did you muster first of all the courage to create that boundary where you saying I'm packing up I'm leaving I'm distancing myself um did you go through those bouts of guilt and I'm as I'm sure <laughs> um we do and getting over to that crossing point um I did and I didn't I am a really independent spontaneous kind of person so mm-hmm. when I made a decision to go I just left like we were actually visiting my parents in um, the summertime, we'd always go up to Canada to go see my parents. And we were there for like about a week or so. And my husband was supposed to meet us and he showed up and he just looked terrible. And I knew that he had been on drugs. So I refused to go home with him. So I left, I left my kids in Canada. I called my landlord. I got out of my lease like that day. And I went back mm. the next day with a, and I rented a U-Haul and I hired movers and I moved. Like I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't mess around with threats or anything at all. Yeah. I just did it because I, I find I tried the threats and it didn't do anything. So I just decided to just get over it. Right. I was, I would find a new life. That was fine. And if he wanted to be a part of it, then great. And if he didn't, then too bad for him. And so I just left. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the hardest thing was that God was telling me to stay with him because I didn't want to. I was done. I was like over it. I would didn't want to put up with it. I thought I deserved better. And God was like, no, just wait. <laughs> mm, that's so interesting. I was going to, because that was going to lead into my next question about like how faith gets intertwined into this because it adds this extra component, right? Um, where there yeah. are also people like on the flip side where maybe they, they do need those boundaries and it has gotten so bad and there does need to be that separation. But there is this guilt of, um, you know, what God puts together, no man should separate. And, you know, you guys are, you know, the the um oh gosh now I'm tripping over my words um just the gosh what am I trying to what is the word I'm thinking of it begins with the c covenant yes thank you thank you you're welcome (laughs) and this covenant that you have together not breaking it and not saying obviously like the first step is to call the whole thing quits um but then having those people who maybe are in it and and feel like they have to stay under severe um, in extreme circumstances because of their faith. Like, I'm wondering, just talking through this, like, what what do those healthy boundaries look like? You know, I know that there are obviously uh, various scriptures to point to. And then as always, it's like, well, if he's not cheating, if it's not adultery, then, you know, you stay under this. Um, right. which can also shame so, a lot of people into an unhealthy situation. So yeah, just processing through all of that. Okay, so this is one of my favorite things to talk about. But I this this was easier for me because I am already divorced. When I was right. 21 and I got pregnant, I married the father because I thought that I had sinned and I was trying to make it right. That's literally my so, story. Yeah. <laughs> literally my story. So totally hear you. Yeah. So anyways, it was a really bad marriage. He was very um, aggressive. I think he's a narcissist. He was just really, really, really tough to be around. And so I left being married. Well, I left the, um, I might want to say that. So I left the, I left his presence within the first year and I moved out because it was so bad. Yeah. And then I filed for divorce after he locked me in the house. So it, oh I mean, gosh. it got, yeah, like it got really bad really fast. So it, as soon as that happened and I did file for divorce, the next like two years of my life, I dealt with all of that shame of being divorced. Mm-hmm. And I really, really researched it. And I really like sought God about what I think that he's saying to people about divorce. And I've come to this place now where I really, there's, there is so many verses in the Bible that talk about how to treat people and what love looks like and how God um, views covenants and what is holy. And 
there's so many verses about how light cannot partner with darkness, period, anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and I just don't think that we ever had a real marriage. Like, just because we got married on a piece of paper, I don't believe that it was real. And God had, had spoken to somebody in my life who was the, she was like my 80 year old mentor. She was awesome. She didn't know me at all. And the first time I met her, she's like, God said the word annulment to me. Your marriage was annulled. And I was like, Oh, who are you? You know, yeah, this is amazing because I needed to hear that because I felt so much shame. I thought I could never get married again. And you know, how many people get stuck in these horrible, horrible situations, you know, and the Bible even says that God permitted them to, that Moses, he permitted Moses to give the people divorces because of the hardness of their hearts, but that wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. That's what they say. And of course, that's not the way that it's supposed to be, right? It's, it's, of course not. That's not how God views marriage and marriage is a beautiful thing when it works. And when you have two people who are real partners, and yeah. I think often with addiction, it's not a partnership as well. And sometimes you'll find Christians who have married how I did, right? We've married non-Christians. And so you can't partner light and darkness. It doesn't work. And God had to change my husband's heart for our marriage to get better. It was the only way for it to change. And that is why he told me to stay because my husband's a totally different person now than he was before. But without that change of heart, you can't have a marriage partnership and, you know, it just doesn't work. So faith brings in a lot, you know, it's, sorry. Yeah, ahead. no, I was, I'm, cause I'm, and, and I, I've been in like the same, I've been in the same scenario. So I, I'm like with you on just wrestling with all those questions and through scripture. And for me, you know, it was like, okay, well, if the non-believing spouse leaves, then, you know, kind of let them go and you have yep. your freedom and I can't, I'll have to look it up. I'll post it in the show notes. <laughs> I know it's yeah. in Matthew. It's in Matthew. Um, you know, and, and that was kind of my case um, when I was very young, like you. And, uh and so I know that there are some people who are listening who may be in this situation. And we are and we are talking about addiction here. Um, we are talking about, in many ways, like verbal and psychological abuse. And especially if it's a physically abusive situation, we're not talking about oh, yeah. just, you know, hard times. <laughs> so I do want to make that clear. We're talking about very severe cases here. Um, and you might have someone who's like, okay, but how long do I wait Right. Because that's the question when you're in something like that. You're like, how long do I wait for this to get better? How long do I wait for them to change? Um, and what boundaries do I put in place in the meantime while the change is not being shown? I know that you talk a lot about, you know, um, you say you help wives of addicts set boundaries without screaming. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like what what does that look like? you know. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're going to get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing. But I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one -on -one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone 
someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the sign up process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So I think that when we're married to difficult people, let's say, or people in difficult relationships, it we kind of just give up on our dreams, right? We put our lives on hold and we really just stop pursuing our own kind of path and we get really sucked into theirs. So the way that I teach people to make boundaries is not to not love that person because that causes too much friction, but just to start focusing on your own path again. So what are your dreams that you gave up? And I and I make it really simple. And I try to always use this example of, um, you know, if you woke up in the morning, what does your most peaceful day look like? Like to me, I want to wake up and the sun is shining and maybe I have some white linen curtains blowing and there's fresh coffee brewing and a croissant out on a balcony and I can look at the beach or and maybe I have an hour to write all alone. You know, that's like my nice morning. So what can I do then to make my day look like that in my normal life right now? Does that mean that I need to wake up early in the morning before my family and I take one extra hour to, you know, do that? Do I set my coffee the night before? And it's all these really tiny, tiny, tiny steps, but they make a huge difference because you'll start to reclaim things that are important to you. And the more that you're doing what makes you feel good, the more peaceful you are and the more healthy you are, like maybe you need to see a therapist, you know? And so you have to find the time to put that into your life. And the healthier you are, the more that you'll see that you are really actually helping your spouse. And if they don't want your help at that point, after you've really focused on what's healthy and good for you, if they don't want to be a part of it, they're going to make that really clear. Like, I don't even think you have to push as much at that point. It will be really obvious. You're going to say, I'm going to take this class. I'm going to spend $300 a month on it, which means that when you get paid, I'm going to take that money. I'm going to put it into a savings account automatically. And, you know, this is what it happens. If they're going to keep spending that money or they're just going to not give you their paycheck or whatever, you know what I mean? Then, you know, that's they're already crossing the line. So if they're not going to work with you, then you have to start being a little bit more tough about the boundaries. But the whole point is just to really work towards what is good for you. So what do you need to be happy? What do you need to be peaceful? Do you need your own independent? Do you need a better job? Do you need a babysitter? You know, like, what is it? Yeah. I mostly deal with moms. (laughs) Yeah. And that's right. And that's tough because you have a child in the situation and that's a whole other layer. But I, I love what you're saying about autonomy because it's like basically taking, making sure you're taking care of yourself because it really is easy to get wrapped up in that savior syndrome when you're with a partner who's dealing with addiction and your whole life is around saving them in ways that like honestly you, you can't make those choices for them, right? Like we would bang, we will yeah. bang our heads on the wall forever trying to change someone, trying to create all the right circumstances to get them to change. Maybe if I get them to this sermon, maybe if I get them mm-hmm. to read this verse, maybe if I, you know, try to control their circle, right? Like those things will yeah. drive you wild. You know, you, you can't, 
change someone who hasn't had that deep conviction or or has enough to even take those steps to get more help to change um yeah and so I love what you're saying about about autonomy uh because I I think that can get really lost and so I'm I'm curious for you like how did those boundaries start like kind of what was kind of your first boundary your second boundary because I know for me in the past it was like okay look this is the deal (laughs) You know, if if you want to continue to have a, a your family, a healthy family and whatnot, um, like these these behaviors have to they have to stop. And I'm here to help you. I'm here to walk with you. I understand this is bigger than you and we need to find other resources. But these are the steps we have to take, you know, and it's like you've set the boundaries. They're clear. Like you said, there's no question about it. And once you've done that, their actions make it very clear what yeah. they, what they think about those boundaries at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I'm curious what yours were as you were as you guys were moving through that process of, I don't know, recovery and making change from what it was. So at first, I had really bad boundaries, and I made him go to AA. That was like my real thing that I made him do. He had a friend that he went with, and he had to go. And if he didn't go to the meeting. I would yell at him and that was, that was the boundary and it it did, it didn't work. And also he wasn't an alcoholic and you know, it was just really causing friction between us. He hated going. He kept telling me that it makes him feel like he's a loser and he doesn't know how that's going to help him feel better. Right. Mm. This is, this is going to make me better because this just makes me feel worse. All these people, they're, you know, complaining about their life and whatever. And I never listened to him. So, and I'll, and I'll circle back to that because that was really important. Um, but the, the first real good one I think that I had was that I had just said that there would never be drugs in the house. And if there was, and he ever did drugs in the home, that he would agree to immediately go to rehab. And he had to agree on it with me or, you know, we weren't going to live together because I wasn't, I, that's been from the start, like major for me. You don't bring drugs into my house ever. Like mm-hmm. you want to go do them and you're high and you know, you're out, then you come home when you're not high anymore. Like you are not bringing them around. And I only, I mean, the kids were tiny. They probably wouldn't have known, but I was not okay with it. Yeah. So when he did do drugs in the house and I wasn't home, mind you, we had gone away for the weekend to Canada. Um, I came back and he had done drugs in the house. And so he did go to treatment. Like he, he did go not happily, but he went. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. But he did go to the like a one month program. Um, And then when he got back, again, it was I mean, my boundaries evolved. Like when he got back out of there, we went to marriage counseling. And Mm -hmm. that helped that helped me. But the counselor actually kicked him out. She said, after about six months, I can't actually help you anymore. Because this is as much as he's willing to open the box. And until he's willing to open it and dig deeper, I can't help you. Mm. <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay. Um, right. So then we just kind of existed for a while. And then he relapsed again. And then the thing happened where I left and I moved out. He had come back really high. So, I mean, I didn't, honestly, I didn't put up with very much. And I tell people that often because I don't, Sometimes when I hear people staying for like, you know, 15 years living like this, now you've gotten into a really, really difficult pattern that you have to break. Like I broke it from the start. So he never got used to me saying things and then not following through. I was really firm from the beginning that this is what I would and would not live with. Right? Yeah. And I think what's, and I, what what I'm hearing you say, which is kind of my heart as well, going through all this, is it's not like, hey, you're just, you're giving up, it's out cold, it's, you know, you do this or that's it. Because we understand that addiction is bigger than the person. Um, in many ways, it changes, can change the brain in that mm-hmm. cycle, right? You have withdrawals and whatnot and the body and dependency. There's so much going on. There's so many factors 
that are bigger than a person saying, I'm going to stop today. I'm gonna, so that's the yeah. first thing, right? Like that's the first thing. Usually when someone's in addiction, it's not something they can stop on their own. It's not something where it's like, hey, I need you to stop this and they're just gonna drop everything. <laughs> like that. Yeah. that is an unrealistic expectation. It's bigger than them. It's bigger than you. Um, and uh, you need that extra help. Like you were saying, the, the rehab, the, going to marriage counseling and, and having those boundaries. Like there really has to be this system in place and you put this system in place with love, you know, that it's yeah. like, hey, I'm not saying I'm leaving you out in the cold, you know, by separating, by taking space. I'm saying that, you know, in order for there to be change, we need to take extra measures. And I'm here with you along that process because I realize it's bigger than you. But we have to be willing to at least be in the process. I'm not expecting you to change overnight or in a week, but at least that willingness to start the process is yeah it you know and that's really important because he was not willing to do things um about his mental health like after the Mm. addiction was done I had to put boundaries in about his mental health because the whole when everything was said and done it turns out that he was bipolar and so interesting okay yeah even when he tried to quit he couldn't quit he would kept relapsing and then he'd hate himself and he didn't know why he was but he was having a problem with controlling the impulses. So, um, but I had to put boundaries around it because he did not want a label. He did not want to take medication and he was just really kind of prideful about it. And so I had to put boundaries around that too, which is, which honestly, that was harder than the addiction because Mm. addiction can go away. And it's not something for him to accept is wrong with him. It's something wrong that he's doing. But talking to him about his mental health was really, really hard. Like that was yeah. really difficult. And what I was going to say before that I, the biggest mistake I think I made all the way through was not listening to him. I, we often mm-hmm, just kind mm-hmm. of discount people because they have addictions and they don't know anything. And so then we know what's best for them. And when I started listening to him about what he needed to do better and what he needed to feel better and what kind of things he thought he should do it helps so much. Like I kid you not, he went to, he went to all these rehabs. I don't think that they did that much except give him time not doing drugs. Right. Right. But the things that helped him was this men's group that he joined at church. And it turns out that all the guys in the men's group had been through something tough, like jail or mental illness, or they'd lost somebody or just something really difficult. So he had this amazing men's group. So he had like, people he could go to all the time. They were all really successful people. So he didn't feel like a loser. Right. And right. He, and he saw them living really well and they really encouraged him. He joined a biking club and that was like, he started long, long distance biking. Like he would go 50 kilometers or so, like he would just go crazy far. And that helped tremendously. Yeah. Um, and then, and then he saw a psychiatrist because I pushed him to, but and then went to counseling. So I mean, those are the things that actually really helped. It wasn't even rehab or anything. Yeah, they do say marriage is a protective factor. And you hear this and it's like, yeah, because you have that spouse that's like, uh, and I think this really did you you sharing this and thank you so much. I appreciate you and your husband both for having the transparency in to, to share all of this, you know, because it's It's more common than people think. Um, You uncovered another layer of uh, mental diagnosis, which, man, that's the other thing. A lot of times substance abuse is a way to self-medicate mental diagnosis. And so So there are so many layers that I don't think people realize when it comes to addiction. Like you're un, you're like un, you know, tying I so to speak so many layers like first you're like it's okay it was the alcohol okay no wait it's deeper than that it he was on harder drugs okay wait actually all of there's a mental diagnosis involved and all of that is medicating this self-medicating this these reoccurring symptoms because of this because of the bipolar um Mm -hmm. because of that bipolar diagnosis and you're just going deeper and deeper and I think you're really highlighting like it's a process it's a journey. There are multiple things that are involved. And the only way that you can really go about that is by seeking the help, 
like you said, getting the assessment, going to the psychiatrist. Um, and in that process, he gained new skill. He gained new skills. He gained new tools, um, whether it be medication, the biking group, the men's support group, like. And it sounds like those were very transformational for him, but it definitely took unraveling all of the parts that were pulling this together. Yeah, well, and because of the bipolar, those were really healthy things that he needed in his life that he didn't have. Like he didn't really exercise. He learned about healthy eating from therapy and just having a better, um, you know, like being more mindful of what you're putting into your body and how it's helping you. He was sleeping better because he was biking so long. Like all these little things that really make a difference on your mental health. And I do tell people now to check the mental health first at this point, because I I think more people struggle with mental health than addiction, like in the end, like, I really think it's more that they just feel horrible, you know, and they don't know, they don't know how to fix it. Right. Because usually the substance abuse, that's really just a way to self-medicate the symptoms. You're trying to either escape something or medicate something or, you know, neutralize something. But it's just an unhealthy tool that you're using to solve it. Mm -hmm. Like you're trying to solve, you're trying to cope, but you're just not using the best tool to be doing doing that. Um, And it's fun and it feels good, right? Right. It's like, so, you know. You keep doing it because it it was fun. (laughs) Right. Until it's not fun anymore. Until it's not fun and it it becomes self-destructive to you and those Uh around you. And I think looking at that, looking at it that way is very human to say, you know, to not stigmatize, right? And say it's a human being that is having human struggles and is trying to cope and find ways to cope and live through this, but is just not using the right tools and needs to find new ones and better ones. And that's what this is, you know? Um, and um, yeah, what was I going to say? I was going to say something, but now I forgot. <laughs> um, so, oh, now I remember. So all of this being said, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit because yeah. being on the other end, I know that, like you were saying earlier, it can be easy for us to be like, oh, this person has the addiction. This is what they're dealing with. This is what they need, blah, blah, blah. And be that quote unquote kind of savior syndrome on the other side. But I'm sure looking back as I have, you see things that you were like, well, where you either contributed or you made it worse or you, you know what I mean? Or you weren't exactly, we aren't, we aren't perfect in this either, (laughs) you know? Um, And so I'm curious, like, for you, what were the biggest takeaways that you learned as a wife also for other wives or partners listening, you know, um, as far as what we, the supporter, the person supporting or the partner can do on their end um, to maybe be most helpful? So I think that there's a few things. One is that you need to know who to talk to. That's really important. Like, you need a good friend or somebody, not just a therapist, but somebody that you can call when you need to call somebody instead of yelling at your spouse, because that's not helpful. Um, and I tell the ladies always to make, somebody had mentioned it in a group once and I just thought it was great, but they to have a rule of three. So you don't bring up anything with your spouse until they've done three things wrong, because it just starts arguments. So if you have a friend that you can call for the first two, (laughs) right? And then Mm -hmm. maybe about the third as well, it kind of helps bring clarity because we get into this really panicked, I need to do something about it right now. It's happening to me and and I I need help right this second, right? It's like this emergency feeling, but it's really not. Like it's really, it's really okay. Like they're probably going to do it again. And you know, they're just going to end up sleeping it off anyway. And it's really not like the end of the world. Like you can, you can deal with this. You did it before, so you can do it again. And it, you know, and I don't want to like make it small, but I just, I, it's just really important to try to be calm. Right. So finding somebody to talk to who's not them about all of your emotions and feelings and pain is, is a good idea because they're probably not going to be able to take it anyway. Um, And then I would also say to, like really just start to recognize and you might need therapy for this, but just really start to recognize what your triggers are. Like, 
when my husband started going missing, that was a huge panicking thing for me. I started, I eventually did get a panic disorder because of it. I got PTSD. So, I mean, that was major and I had to go to a doctor and I had to get medication and, you know, just to deal with it. So, I mean, that's okay. You know, you can go to a doctor, you can, you can get help with what's going on with you. This is traumatizing and it can really, really, really affect you. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult. So, so look for help there. Um, like I slapped my husband once, like I really just lost, I just lost my marbles, honestly. <laughs> just, yeah. I turned into a different person completely. Um, and that's and easy would, to do. Yeah. 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 And then honestly, I I think that the spouse needs practical things to feel safe. Like just start a small savings account on your own. You know, when you go to the grocery store, get $40 extra cash back every time and just set it aside, you know, like, um, or, or have a little bag packed just in case you need it, you know, and you need to, and you need to leave because this is very unpredictable. Have a place that you can go and, and I think, oh, and you know what else too? I, so, and I don't want to like, I okay, so I think that the spouse is definitely not to blame in any way, right? I don't, I do think we need to take responsibility for our own feelings and actions, yeah. but I would never want to blame the spouse. Um, but I also don't want them to feel victimized because then you feel like you can't help yourself either. Right, right? So the shame cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't want anyone to ever feel like they can't get out of this because you can, they can change. And if they don't change, then you change, you know, and, and somebody will, will kind of work their way out of it. So yeah. So I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say there. But yeah, I- <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. I, I really love that practical advice too, of having something, having things in place for you just in case that make you feel safe that make yeah. you have some safety in the back of your mind, whether it is, okay, I know I have an extra place to stay just in case, mm-hmm. or that person, or I have this little stash of money. And, you know, and I don't know, some people don't believe in a plan B, but the truth is, especially for those who are in it, if you've been in it, um, and if you haven't been in it, I mean, I'm sorry, like, you, you have to understand it. it is traumatizing, like you're saying, and you can develop PTSD and panic disorder. And it is so many other things that can take over a person's life. And, yeah. um, and, and if your kids are in it, and if right? your kids are in it too, you, yeah, you need a plan B. It's not smart not to have one. You have to have one. You need to have a place that you can go if they come home violent or drunk because it's and unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. Like you just do. And it's just, and you may never, ever need it, but it's not smart not to have one. And same with the finances. Like I see a lot of women that um, they just kind of let their husbands steamroll their finances. At a certain point, you may need to get a divorce just to protect your finances. It doesn't mean that you have to leave your marriage. It doesn't mean anything. Like here in Canada, you can financially emancipate your finances. Oh, like you that's can interesting. Them. Yeah, but I don't think you can in the States. But I mean, you could get a separation, whatever it is, to separate them and protect them because you can't let them take your house and your mortgage and everything and ruin your life. You know, (laughs) you gotta. Very bluntly. Yeah. 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 That's so interesting. Financial emancipation. See, it's very interesting how a lot of this comes down to legal terminology. Um, Mm. Wow. So switching over, switching gears really quickly um, about the recovery process about you guys being in this being in a different stage right um and now being in a place of I would say maybe maintenance now and um more of a more of a a protective factor like protecting against these things happening again or escalating again um you're preparing for a book release and it's called no one brings you a casserole when your husband goes to rehab and I, I think that's so interesting. Can you expound on that title? Because I feel like I know where you're going, but I'd love to hear you share it. Because I was really lonely and my husband went to rehab for a year and I went, I moved home and all my friends and family were there. And I went back to my church with my pastor who knows me. And I felt this might not be true. It's probably not true at all, but I felt like 
I was all alone and nobody cared that I was all by myself, you know? Um, And I know the one thing, and I talk about this in the book, but the one day I just had a real pity party for myself. My son had joined a Christian school. And so, you know, it was all couples. It was very conservative and Mm -hmm. small and safe, though, at the time. It was just such a nice place for him to be. But um, I went to the to the welcoming dinner and everybody was sitting down and there was just, I felt like I was the only single mother there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that I was, Been but there. I felt like I was. Been yeah. there. Yep. And there was these two husbands and the only empty chairs were beside me and neither one of them would sit down. And I was so mortified. I felt like the scarlet woman, you know, I was yeah. like, yeah, oh my yeah, goodness. that's real. <laughs> this is what we're doing now, you know, and now I'm going to be this lady with two kids from two different people. And I've met this Christian school and nobody will talk to me and no one wants to be my friend. And that's how it started. (laughs) You know, it was sad. I was really sad. I, it was a sad day, but I, but I needed to feel that because in the end, um, So what, what really did it? Okay. So I'll just keep going. So I went, I went out to my car later because we were having an outdoor movie. And so everybody from the school was, was piling into the field and all the husbands were carrying all their wives, lawn chairs and stuff. Right. And of course there's nobody there to carry mine. And I have two kids worth of stuff. So I'm like struggling. I'm only five, four, I'm about 110 pounds. I'm just tiny. So I'm struggling with all this stuff and wobbling into this field from New York, right? Like I'm not really a country girl anyway. So I'm wobbling into the field with all my things and I set up and I was feeling very sorry for myself. And I started wondering if Jesus is going to come and appear and carry my stuff back to the car. (laughs) And It was so dumb. But in that moment, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm not alone. Like I'm not alone. And I started kind of picturing Jesus with me all the time from that point forward. When I was eating dinner alone with my kids, when I would go to events alone, when I was driving, like he was just always with me and it it healed my faith so much. Right. Like it was just such a beautiful kind of way for, for that to heal. It's like that, 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 refining a fire that really purifies like the authenticity of your faith I completely agree it's those moments that really make your faith real (laughs) it's like at this point you are like either at rock bottom or you're feeling like you're at your worst and you either believe this or you don't you're either leaning in or you're running from it you know and when but when you lean in it's like man like this this is real it's a really refining experience for your faith and your resilience when you go through something like that you're like i can i can i can walk through anything <laughs> like i can bounce back from anything cuz i survived this period of my life when i yeah. thought it was going to destroy me and i just think you're so resilient and um uh very uh yeah, I feel very uh, kindred spirit here. <laughs> um, Thank you. And all of that being said, uh, just wrapping up with a, the last question here, um, with what you went through and being at you know the Christian school and going to your pastor and uh, this ha- this comes up a lot in, in churches, you know, and I think the pastors see it more or whoever is with pastoral care deals a lot with these issues of um, addictions with couples and couples counseling. Um, and I'm wondering, how do you think the church can be most supportive for families and marriages struggling with addiction? Like w- being on the other side, being in that, you know, what would you say helps? What doesn't help when it comes to the church community for all who are listening? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I think that... I think that for the church to be most helpful, I think that they should facilitate something with somebody who's been through it because Mm, that's good. Almost all the pastors I spoke to gave me really bad advice. Some blamed me, not intentionally, but it, it was just very, very difficult to I think for them to try to understand what I was going through. Yeah. And the other problem is my husband did not respect any of them. So Mm. if you can have somebody who's been through it or even like somebody who's honestly like just kind of been through some dark stuff, 
that would help a lot. When you start to throw this sunshine and flowers and casserole. And easy fixes and just do this and I hear you. Yeah, it doesn't work. Like you, they can't be afraid of a swear word. They need to be a little raw. I think you have to be able to really freely speak your mind to get help, you know, because addiction affects every area of the marriage, like from sex to everything, you know, and, and the other thing too, I think would help is if they just could, um, just kind of make it easier to talk about because it's not, it's not right now. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. And it's not, it's not that it, not that I think that people wouldn't talk about it, but there's just no place for it in most churches. Not all of them, but in a lot of, there's no place for it. You know, when are you going to bring it up and to who? As you're saying that I'm thinking about, I'm trying to, I'm thinking about my experiences and how many times addiction is brought up. Like there was, I, I think a celebrate recovery group at some point at one church for addiction, which is like the sharing. It's almost like it was kind of like the Christian AA um, in a way. Yeah, me too. Been Celebrate Recovery twice. Um, (laughs) uh, But as far as, yeah, the most, in my experience, it's been a lot of like kind of behind closed doors, the pastor or pastoral care person kind of talking with that couple. And I see what you're saying. A lot of times, it is with people who have never been through that or, and because they haven't been through it, it's, it can be very blanketed, you know, with scriptures and Christian colloquialisms and, you know, and it's just, it's not meeting your reality. It's not meeting the reality of all of these layers because there are so many layers. There's the addiction, there's the lying, but the lying and addiction go hand in hand. And then there's the uh, financial situation that's interwoven. And then there's the maybe the mental diagnosis that's underneath all of that. Like it is so multi-layered and that yeah. I think people just need to get that part down. Like it is not something you can just blow over with a scripture and say, well, you know, God's called you to a covenant. So no. Wait, wait for the, let your behavior, this is what I hear, let your behavior set an example for them and they'll come to believe, right? That verse, that verse gets thrown around and I'm just like, okay, yes, yes, that's a start, but, um, but there's so many more layers to it and, and we can't treat it this black and white because it's not meeting people where they are and it's, Right. And it's not totally helpful if I'm just being honest. And so it's so yeah. important to have people who are, who are seasoned and have been in that who can tie it all together and actually be, be helpful, I think. Yeah, and you can't tell people to submit. Like there, you have a spouse submitting to sin, right? You can't tell the wife then to be submissive to her husband who's following the devil. Like there's nothing biblical about that at all. Like it's it's just not... Um, it's just not okay the way that it's spoken about for the most part. And celebrate recovery is fine, but it's not really doing anything to be totally honest. It's like more of like an all, outlet. Yeah. Yeah. All of those programs are what they do is they set you up with um kind of like a place where it's not shameful, you know? Right. But there's yeah. there's no real connection there. And it's not really pushing you into this. Um, life-changing thing that you need to do. You have to figure out why this is starting. You know, why did you react that way? Why are they doing that? And sometimes you're not going to find that answer in church. Sometimes it's medical. Sometimes it's, Mm -hmm. it's emotional, you know, like it's, it's not necessarily just a, just a blanket response. Like my husband is, is in recovery. So my husband is in recovery because of the medicine, but my husband's entire person has changed because of God, right? That's but amazing. I don't I don't know that he would have gotten there without the medicine. Like it's he both. really Yeah. Yeah, it's both. And everything you're saying is everything that's advocated on this podcast. So you're just bringing it home for me. <laughs> um <laughs> you're you're bringing it home for me cuz um like the the celery recovery, the support at church that is 
one, I, I don't want to be dismissive by saying it's just one tool in the tool belt, um, but it's, I'll say it's one part of the system that needs to be, the system of support that needs to be there for something that's so multi-layered. You know, yeah. um, you do need the support. Like you said, you do need that word that renews your soul. God, where God transforms you from the inside out for sure. But you also might need medication if it is yeah. something more going on biologically. You you might need more, this person or yourself or whoever might need more than one tool. And usually it it's, a, it's an entire system that needs to be at work that's supporting that person's life and you as a family. And that's okay. Like, that's what we're all here for. That's what the body's supposed to be for. Let's just realize that, you know, so we're yes. not bypassing. Yes, I love that. I love that. That is exactly what the body is for. <laughs> that's it. And you know what? And that's how the church could help. That's it. Like, we need to be the hands and feet and body and the doctors and the therapists and everybody. Oh, you know what the church could do? They could They could help to pay for, like, therapy and psychiatry appointments. That would be major. Yeah, or like even like, okay, so we have, um, I want to say Alexandra Thompson. She came on earlier before. She's a therapist and she Mm -hmm. holds her space in a church. And I believe she was saying this, I've heard this a few times, it could even be a case where, you know, sometimes these therapists and um, psychiatrists, uh, mental health counselors and professionals could use office space. So we were talking about how, you know, if you have space in your church or in your somewhere in your building or your office, maybe you can house a, uh, you know, maybe you can house a mental health professional there. And they maybe, maybe the way that partnership works is, you know, maybe they're not um, paying rent for the space, um, but they're offering maybe some services in, in exchange. Right. Like, I don't know that financially, like maybe not all of it, right? Not working for free, but there can be some type of partnership there potentially, or at least just even having some resources on hand. We, I think we expect a lot of times a pastoral team to be the expert of all things. And it's okay to have a, a, a wider system of support there. Yeah. Yeah. Even like, even if they just had referrals, that would help because I find a lot of them don't you know, and sometimes you need to know who to go to. Like, that's, yeah. that's the battle, right? Is trying to find the right person to help. So and I was going to ask just, you, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to ask if you, in closing, if you have any resources that you know of or that have helped you guys or I don't know, anything that you would like to throw out there that you think could be helpful for anyone who's listening in? Yeah, so... Um, so for this, actually either person, there's a really great book. Um, the title's a little funny, but the book is amazing. And it's by this, this man named John Ellis. He's a pastor who I saw actually, and my husband both saw as well. And he teaches about how to, how all of our reactions go back to these three kind of, um, emotions of fear, anger, and sadness. And so it helps you identify which one of these things you're more prone to and why you're feeling that. And then it kind of just gives you prayers and practical things to help with that. So that book is called 343 from hmm. Unlovable to Lovable. And it's, it's oh, a wow. tiny little book, but you will find it. It's really amazing. Like, I honestly don't have enough to say about it. He was a, <laughs> a principal. And so he just watched kids and how they reacted and this is kind of what he has studied about human behavior. It's, it's fascinating. Um, so yeah, so that's a great book. And the other thing is this marriage workshop that we went to. And I'm not all about these, like at all. I'm, I think they're cheesy. I don't do them. I'm just not, I don't do, I don't do any of this stuff, to be honest. I don't do mommy groups, nothing. And this marriage workshop was really, really good. Um, his name is Dr. Grant Mullen. And he is actually Canadian, but he is one of the most renowned mental health experts in Canada. And he's a Christian. Um, he's also a doctor. He was a, he was a doctor before he became a, a counselor. And he also counseled me and my husband, which is why we went to this, this marriage thing. Um, but he does a marriage workshop now twice a year, two or three times a year. And you can also buy his resources online. And he's just got a website. He's got all kinds of stuff on there. His 
email list is amazing. He sends you videos like every day about anxiety and and just everything, but he relates the mental health with a faith perspective. And it's just really nice to hear. Well, we love those resources because they are not so popular and not so widespread. So when we can find a good one, <laughs> we definitely want to uh, stay connected with those. And so I'll be sure to post some of those links in the show notes below. So if you guys are interested, yeah. feel free to check it out. And how can those who are listening stay connected with you and the work that you're doing beyond this podcast? So my website is called Leah Gray. It's G-R-E-Y with gray.com. And I have, I do a course as well on boundaries to help wives. We do, it's about four weeks long and we kind of go through the whole thing. Like, what do you need and what's your perfect day and how can I help you get there? And then we do one week of aftercare as well. Um, and I have some Bible studies on there and there's a free resource library that's got videos and another Bible study in it and a whole bunch of stuff. So you're yeah, amazing. That's where I am. You're amazing. Um, I cannot wait to see more of what you're doing. Um, want to thank your husband as well for allowing his story to be shared <laughs> and want to thank you for your vulnerability. And, you know, sometimes we just, we need that, you know, we need someone who's just going to say, Hey, this is what it's like. I know this is what happens and this is the reality of it. And it's so validating, um, to just, I think for others to know that they're not alone in some of these experiences and feelings. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks guys for listening until next time.